Hello, folks. I wanted to tell you at the top of the show that this Halloween episode of the Weird History Podcast includes mentions of violence, suicide, and sexual violence. So if you would rather not listen to that, feel free to turn it off right now. Thanks. Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is ad-free and independent because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter at weirdhistorypodcast.com. Quote, Leaving the metro at Pigatel, you had to walk down the Rue Pigatel, between the ranks of fishnet stockings and cigarette smoke. In the light of the neon signs and the sound of music that emanated from the clubs lining both sides of the street. At the crossroads with the Rue de Notre Dame de Lorette, the Rue Fontaine, and the Rue Chaptal, you took a right turn down the Rue Chaptal. The contrast was alarming darkness and silence. A sad street, curiously barely lit, without any shops, deserted. You could hear the sound of your own footsteps on the pavement. Three hundred meters further along, invisibly, suddenly emerging from the right, the Cité Chaptal, a narrow dead-end alley, about one hundred meters long, culminating in the barely lit façade of the theater. Some inordinately tall trees, which are no longer there, reach for the sky above the roofs, amidst the sinister light of the street lamps. Unquote. That is a description from the late 1940s of the venue we're going to talk about today. And at the end of that street, you see a building that very obviously used to be a church, or rather a small chapel. It is not anymore. Its days of being a holy place are long over, and now it's something of an inverted sanctuary. Still, after you buy your ticket, and after you go in, you see that the walls are still filled with religious imagery. There are saints and angels left over from its days as a chapel. But there's no altar here. There is no holy sacrament. Instead, there is a stage. And each night, a different sort of ritual plays out. What of torture, suffering, fear, and death? Welcome to the Grand Guignol, the French theater of horror, a venue that specialized in depictions of terror and thrilled Parisians and visitors from around the world from the 1890s until the 1960s. The Grand Guignol produced over 1,200 original plays and has gone down in history as one of the most prolific and legendary houses of horror in the world. Dismemberment, beheadings, blood, screams, insanity, disease, revenge, suicide, severed limbs. You could see them all at the Grand Guignol and delight as the players died and killed each other again and again and again. This October, we're doing two episodes about the Grand Guignol. This is the first about the theater itself, and the second is going to be a little different. But if you were to go into the Grand Guignol in Paris sometime in the 
teens or 1920s, you wouldn't have seen just one play. No, you would have seen several one-act plays on the same bill. And that was actually a common business model for a lot of small theaters at the time. Various plays in an evening's performance would be often of several different genres or styles in order to appeal to as large as possible an audience. And that is how the Grand Guignol started. It did not start as a theater known necessarily for horror. Like a lot of other small theaters, it diversified. It could show you all sorts of things over the course of an evening. The Grand Guignol's earliest genres were, and I'm going to mispronounce many French words and names over the course of this episode, Moers Populaire, or Popular Manners Plays, or Faits Divers, News Items. And both of these genres, genres about ordinary people or current events, they were naturalistic and realistic. There were not a lot of fantasy elements, or any fantasy elements, and they tried to be very matter-of-fact. In the late 1800s, that was considered a bit unusual, or even shocking or radical, even before you had any blood and guts involved. Uh, one of the more notable plays that was of this Moers populaire genre, or popular manners genre, was a production called Le Bramet, which was a play about a woman who became a sex worker for the economic welfare of her family. And this was, of course, shocking and titillating to audiences at the time, but the production had a kind of gritty realism to it, which presented working-class life in a non-romanticized fashion. That working-class aesthetic, by the way, is where the name Grand Guignol comes from. Now, Grand Guignol, when you read about it, is oftentimes translated as the big puppet or the big puppet show, but that is not because it treated actors like a bunch of meat puppets doing stuff for the audience's amusement, though it did do that. No, Guignol was the name of a popular puppet character in France at the end of the 1800s. And that Guignol character was a kind of stock character, usually portrayed as a silk worker, who was known for being honest, witty, and clever. And Guignol would usually get the better of his more upper-class, cruel, and malicious antagonist. He was kind of like Bugs Bunny in that way. So in the late 1800s and early 1900s France, the name Grand Guignol would have sounded like the Big Bugs Bunny, but with a little bit more working-class flavor applied to it. It's kind of weird to think about, given what the theater is famous for. It's kind of like how the famous punk venue, CBGB's, that name was short for Country Bluegrass and Blues, and yet it was known for, like, Blondie and the Ramones and television and talking heads. It's one of those. But I digress. The Grand Guignol started with popular manor plays, and current events plays, and of course crime was very popular. And because the crime plays were so popular, and learning about the horrifying news of the day was something that reliably got butts in seats, it ended up leaning more and more into horror and violence in the 1890s. But it also staged comedies just as often as it staged violent plays. In fact, most nights alternated between comedies and horror an effect that was known as a hot and cold shower, with light fare chasing dread, and dread following amusements and fear leading into laughter. 
You could see pratfalls. You could see beheadings. You could see people getting their arms chopped off. And then you could see those same players telling jokes later. Oscar Matenier was an early director at Grand Guignol. He wrote plays for the theater, and he provided a certain dark flair for the place. Like I said, it ended up going from crime and current events plays, transitioning into horror, and Matenier was very much the guy who did that. He was known for always wearing black, being flanked by two silent bodyguards, and he had a habit of getting on stage and regaling the audience with exaggerated tales of the most recent crime and violence from throughout Paris and beyond. Max Moret was a later director, and he leaned even further into the Grand Guignol's reputation as a theater of horrors, whereas Mitenier was very much into crime stories that were oftentimes violent and horrifying. Moret said, oh, it's the violence and horror, as opposed to crime and lawbreaking, that is truly sinister and truly gets people's butts into seats. So it was a genre shift that was kind of like going from, say, really nasty, unpleasant noir to full-on horror. The difference between Raymond Chandler and H.P. Lovecraft, if you will. And Moray was very good at self-promotion. He was all about creating theater posters that would show the audiences all of the nasty, gnarly things that they would see every night. Images of violence that advertised Grand Guignol's hideous sights throughout Paris. And... Famously, he added an in-house doctor to the theater, a physician on hand to, ostensibly, care for anyone who fainted at the sight of blood, revenge, death, or insanity. One cartoon showed a fainting woman swooning with horror and her husband calling for the doctor. But sadly, the cartoon features a member of the theater staff saying that the doctor is unavailable because he has fainted as well. The Grand Guignol also employed a host of working actors, all of whom performed the horrors of each night exceptionally well, but very few of whom were marquee draws themselves. One exception was Paula Maxa, who became known as the most assassinated woman in the world. One critic said of her, quote, All the humiliations that this charming artist has endured during her short but already glorious career cannot be ignored. Cut into 93 pieces by an invisible Spanish dagger, stitched back together in two seconds by a Samaritan, flattened by a steamroller, disemboweled by a slaughterman who steals her intestines, shot by firing squad, quartered, burned alive, devoured by a puma, crucified, shot with a pistol, stabbed, raped, and still she stays happy and smiling." Unquote. Max's fame as an early scream queen was so considerable that she eventually parted ways with the Grand Guignol and started a theater company of her own. Her new venture was not as iconic or successful as the original theater of horror, but for many decades, she was probably one of the most famous actors in Paris because of her nightly suffering on the stage of that old chapel. Another major figure of the Grand Guignol was André Delord, one of the theater's most prolific playwrights. As I mentioned earlier, the Grand Guignol staged over 1,200 of its own in-house plays, many of them written by Delord. And because of the huge amount of one-acts that he wrote for the theater, he was known as the Prince of Terror. He got interested in human suffering, pain, and violence early on. His father was a doctor, and he was intensely interested in the suffering of his father's patients. He would listen to their screams and other unpleasant noises as he put his ear to the door of his father's office. 
Lord knew how to create suspense. He wrote, quote, A dramatic event that happens without any preparation will just distract the spectators or make them laugh. Thus, the author should strive to create an atmosphere, an ambience, to suggest to the audience, little by little, that something dreadful is going to happen. Murder, suicide, and torment seen on the stage are less frightening than the anticipation of that torture, suicide, or murder, unquote. We will get back to that in a moment, but speaking of which, you might have noticed a conspicuous lack of supernatural themes at this point, and Granguinol's plays generally did not include elements that we would now associate with horror. There were, in general, no vampires, werewolves, ghosts, or Lovecraftian monsters. They made very, very occasional cameos, but for the most part, the Grand Guignol was about the kind of horrors that you could conceivably encounter in real life. And this makes sense, really. The Grand Guignol was up and running while a lot of other modern horror staples were just getting established. The Grand Guignol started in 1892. Dracula wouldn't be published until 1897. And Todd Browning's 1931 film starring Bela Lugosi didn't come out until, well, 1931. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft published A Call of Cthulhu in 1928, and Universal Monster Movies and Hammer Horror Films overlapped with the latter period of the Grand Guignol's run. So the media that we think of as being foundational to horror oftentimes was going on at the same time or post-dating a lot of what the Grand Guignol was doing. So unfortunately, a lot of my favorite horror monsters didn't walk the boards of the Grand Guignol. It was one that concerned itself with insanity, crime, sex, revenge, and oftentimes medical horror. Hypnotism was another big theme, as was disease, and several of the Grand Guignol's plays featured characters who'd been exposed to or were afraid of rabies, leprosy, or syphilis. In any other year, I would consider that to be a kind of quaint thing to be afraid of, but I'm recording this in October 2020, and now fear of disease seems... All too apt, actually. And unlike in the United Kingdom or even the United States, France was a bit more lax about what you could put on stage. So blood, nudity, insanity, and killing yourself didn't come in for a lot of official or even social censure. It wasn't like you could do anything you wanted on stage in France, but it was a lot more lax than anything that could be on stage in London and New York. But there was one big taboo. The Grand Guino audiences were all too happy to see people stripped naked, have their heads chopped off, or see guys walking around with blood spurting from where their arms used to be. But when the theater dragged out guillotines and staged fake beheadings, that actually made audiences uniquely upset. The guillotine's history in France is, as you might have guessed, a whole thing. And that particular instrument of death ended up upsetting audiences for a whole host of different reasons. So there was the occasional guillotine on stage at the Grand Guignol, but that guillotine tended to be the things that people found most upsetting. When you use the most iconic symbol of the French Revolution as a device in a horror play for French audiences, you end up pushing people's buttons, and you end up pushing a lot of different buttons across the political spectrum. But for the most part, the theater of horror was able to operate without the kind of censorship or censure it probably would have seen elsewhere. Now, throughout this episode, 
I have been playing up to Granguinol's reputation as a place where you could see spurting blood and severed body parts and heads bouncing around the stage and just a constant barrage of violence, violence, death, death, death. And it was. But recall that Andre Delord quote I read you earlier. The players had the Granguinol executed, <laughs> their stage violence, carefully and deliberately. A lot of the mythology of the Granguinol talks about elaborate special effects on stage, and you might get the impression that the Granguinol was exceptionally graphic, and it was. But I want you to think about something. This is a comparison that Richard Hand and Michael Wilson make in their book Granguinol, the French Theater of Horror. And bear with me for a moment with this comparison that the two authors make. Reservoir Dogs is Quentin Tarantino's first movie, and one of the most memorable scenes entails a character getting their ear cut off. If you've seen Reservoir Dogs, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. One character, a criminal, as another character, a police officer, bound and gagged. The criminal approaches the bound and gagged cop with a knife, and... With a smirk on his face, he sadistically severs an ear from the cop's head as his victim writhes and screams and blood flows down the side of his head as the perpetrator methodically removes the bloody body part. Remember that? Remember that scene where you saw the guy cut the other guy's ear off? Except you didn't. That's not what happens in that scene. It is a very memorable part of Reservoir Dogs. We see the victim bound and gagged. He has fake blood all over him. We see a look of fear in his eyes. We see the tormentor give us a look of anticipatory sadism, and he gets a knife out, but we don't actually see the action itself. The moment of violence is obscured by the tormentor leaning over the victim, and the camera cuts away. You might not remember it that way, but look it up on YouTube. The camera cuts away, and you don't see the ear get cut off. You see a bloody fake ear right after. You hear a cry of pain from the victim. And you see the tormentor looking very pleased with himself. But because of blocking and camera work, you didn't see the violence. You remember it. It affected you. It was disturbing and it grossed you out. And you're probably going, oh my god, the thing with the ear when you talk about Reservoir Dogs. But really, what mattered most were the actors. The way victim and perpetrator alike worked to make you think you see the violence, even if you don't, that's how the Grand Guignol worked a lot. And there were practical reasons for this kind of restraint. Fake blood is expensive. You don't want to use more than you need to. Cleaning it up can be a lot. And there's also dramatic reasons. Too much blood, too much viscera, and too many severed heads aren't scary. They're funny. And many, many horror fans and horror artists know this. Less is more. Evil Dead 2, for instance, is a great movie, but it's more Looney Tunes than it is terrifying because there's so much blood. And there's a famous anecdote about the film Robocop. Again, bear with me. It's one of the greatest movies of the 20th century, and it was initially rated X because of all the violence. The studios released a cut of Robocop with toned-down violence, but... That toned-down R-rated RoboCop was actually a more upsetting movie. The amount of blood and chaos in RoboCop is so extreme and so over-the-top that it's impossible to take seriously. It's awesome. It's a lot of fun. But it's not scary. It doesn't make you feel bad. 
But by toning down the violence in RoboCop, the studio actually made a movie that made you feel bad and made you feel upset and was even a little scary. Less is more. André Delorde, the Prince of Terror at the Grand Guignol, knew this. And the players at the Grand Guignol were also very familiar with comedy. Again, they alternated between horror and comedy, and they knew about the line between the two. They did not want their horror plays to cross into excess or absurdity, and they were in the business of scaring people with their horror plays. They were also in the business of making people laugh with their comedies, but they wanted to make sure that each type of theater delivered a desired emotional effect. The Grand Guignol's reputation is one of excess, and I have been reveling in that in this episode, but its actual plays really got a lot of work done with suspense, with dread, and with imagination. Those are just as important as the climactic moments of terror. André Delord and other Grand Guignol playwrights knew that simply displaying violence was not enough. It had to be properly set up and contextualized. And a lot of horror movies know this now. My favorite genre of horror movie is the 90-minute horror movie where for the first hour nothing happens, and then for the last 30 minutes everything else is bug nuts insanity. You don't really get the desired effect from that last third unless you are winding up for the first part of it. When the emotional damn breaks and the violence finally happens, you want to nail it. And most of the time, the moments of terror at the Grand Guignol were not jump scares. Rather, the violence transpired slowly, painfully, with the actors really selling it and making it very clear that their characters were scared as well. They were repulsed. They were terrified. They were witnessing something horrifying. And because they were, you witnessed something horrifying as well. Even if some of the most extreme gore was just suggested, obscured by shadows, or something that you couldn't quite see. This is Richard J. Hand and Michael Wilson writing in their book, The Grand Guignol, French Theater of Horror, which is the book about the theater. And they write that special effects in fake blood The Grand Guignol were great. There were all sorts of them. They were a lot of fun, but, quote, the central plank of performer-dependent special effects at The Grand Guignol was not, as might be supposed, sleight of hand, but rather the acting skills of the company. Whilst the sleight-of-hand trick relies to some extent on a swiftness of movement, the Grand Guignol has less use for this than an eye-gouging, disembowelment, stabbing, or throat-slitting, which is performed slowly with care and precision, enhanced by the gestures and the facial expressions of the actors. Production photographs show victims who have contorted their bodies and faces into living images of agony, while the murderers show rigid bodies, clenched teeth, and taut facial muscles at just the moment the knife enters the flesh. Unquote. Special effects, sleight of hand, subbing out real heads for severed ones, and lots of fake blood worked in concert with atmosphere, timing, and good actors who knew how to create a sense of fear. Paula Maxa, the most assassinated woman in the world, said herself, quote, Imagination always transcends reality, and it is the imagination, along with a shiver of the soul, that constitutes the poetics of fear, unquote. Throughout its life, the Grand Guignol had a few speed bumps in its career, putting it mildly, one of which was World War I. World War I was a problem for all of Europe and also for the French theater of horror. 
France ordered all theaters closed entirely in 1914. Later on in 1915, playhouses were allowed to open, but Granguinol's repertoire at the time didn't mesh with the wartime feeling in France. France was in a mode where art at the time was expected to be patriotic, heroic, and borderline propaganda, and horror plays were decidedly unpatriotic and unheroic, and seemed completely divorced from what was going on outside. For a theater that started by giving people slice-of-life dramas, the Grand Guignol suddenly seemed unrealistic and out of step, and horrors on stage seemed dissonant, while even worse horrors took place in the trenches. The years of 1915 to 1918 were thin ones for the theater of horror, but then it bounced back. After World War I, the Grand Guignol was extremely successful, and it became something of a tourist destination. There were regulars who called themselves Guillenaires, who attended performances again and again and again, and made a point of showing up whenever a new play debuted. Now, it's tempting for a historical storyteller like myself to create causality between different historical events. I would love to tell you that well, everybody was traumatized by World War I, and after that, they wanted to do something with their trauma, so experiencing horror in a safe manner was a way that they exercised their demons. I cannot do that. I cannot create causality between World War I and the horrors thereof and the success of the Grand Guignol following 1918. I can't tell you that story with any kind of assurance or accuracy. But making that link is certainly tempting. Also around the same time during its period of success, the Grand Guignol franchised. The French theater of horror attempted to become an international theater of horror, with New York and London getting Grand Guignols of their own, and these theaters were not nearly as successful as the French original. They did attract some notable writing talents from playwrights like Noel Coward and Joseph Conrad, but... It was kind of like the Great British Bake Off trying to become the Great American Bake Off. It just didn't have the same original spirit. Those theaters closed after about a year of operation. Like World War I, World War II was not great for the Grand Guignol. It did stay open, but as you can imagine, having Nazis invade and occupy your country is in general not great for the livelihood of a cultural institution, the theater of horror survived the war, but after World War II, it didn't have the same renaissance it had after World War I. When I was reading up on this, I couldn't find a single agreed-upon reason among historians or theater scholars as to why the Grand Guignol declined and eventually closed. A lot of accounts mentioned the Grand Guignol having competition from horror cinema in the 1950s and 1960s, but I don't find that satisfying. Movies did not entirely kill theater. Live theater still exists. After World War II, the Grand Guignol also tried to rebrand itself, going more into psychological terror and thrillers, as opposed to just gore, gore, gore. And maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe it really was because World War II was too much. After World War II, one of the directors did say, we couldn't compete with Buchenwald. And it might be that during that time in Europe, horror of any type didn't seem fun or cathartic, but gauche. We can't say. 
only thing we know for sure is that in 1962, the Grand Guignol closed its doors entirely. The old chapel still stands. It's still a theater, in fact. Today, it's occupied by the International Visual Theater, a company that does plays in sign language. And though the original Grand Guignol is gone, there are multiple theater companies today that still perform Grand Guignol plays, either in French or in translation. Different theater companies will do anthology nights, where they will have a bunch of Grand Guignol plays on a single bill, just like the original theater did. And Grand Guignol plays have been adapted into other medium. EC Comics, which I've talked about on this podcast before, well, those guys appeared to be big Grand Guignol fans because a number of those stories got turned into creepy, weird comic books later on in the 20th century. But I've been talking about the theater itself and what it entailed. One thing I haven't done, I haven't actually told you any of the stories that happened on stage. So if you were to buy a ticket, go into the old chapel and take a seat, what would you see? That's next time. Next time, listeners, your humble podcaster brings you stories from the Grand Guinol. Talk to you then. (laughs) 